Our guest today is Carolyn Cromines from the Cromines Law Firm, and we are talking about the legal issues that exist uh, around contractors and subcontractors and construction. And there's a lot of them. And a lot of them exist around contracts and negotiations and and these types of things that are that don't seem like a huge deal on the front end, but if things go sideways, there can be an enormous amount of pain. And Carolyn is the perfect person to uh, teach us about this. She comes from this world. Her background, you kind of born and raised, salt of the earth, blue collar, uh, around in and around the trades. And this is what her the focus of her law firm is is helping contractors um, avoid these painful lessons by having good legal counsel. And I could not be more uh, pleased to bring you this conversation, especially if you're a contractor or if you think you're going to go into business for yourself as a contractor. She wrote a book about it. It's called Quit Getting Screwed. And we will link to that. And so this will be a good teaser, a good place to start. But for those of you who are in business, uh, turn up the volume and uh, let's enjoy this interview with Caroline Cromines from the Cromines Law Firm. Thank you, first off, for taking the time out of your day and away from your other clients and family and such to be with us. And we'll talk about the nitty gritty of subcontractors and contracts. But as an attorney, my first question, how does craftsmanship show up in your trade and in your world? And what does good craftsmanship mean to you? Well, I think to me, good craftsmanship is crafting my business to help my client be successful, right? What can I do to make sure that they're successful when that a lot of that's like how you know how my customer service my approach i'm always following up and i'm always doing surveys and making sure that my team's on board with you know we're always here we have 24-hour turnaround on any client questions i offer things on a flat fee as much as possible because one of the things that attorneys can be known for is we're unpredictable in pricing we don't know we're expensive um, and so i think that is you know really dialing it in to knowing my customer and knowing what would work for them and so I've crafted my business around that, around, you know, my clients. For contract, not just for contractors, but for everybody, going to that point of calling an attorney, you mentioned the unpredictability of fees, but that's like a, that's an escalation for a lot of people, even just like, who do I call? How do I get there? So should people talk, maybe we'll just talk about the nitty gritty with subcontractors. How soon should a subcontractor bring an attorney into their orbit on their team what are the options for doing that you know that aren't like red alert you know once things are probably too late for you to fix it very much maybe it's like a dentist like preemptive work or something so when, when does that all like happen yeah absolutely no so you know i can help you when the fire is there but i'm much more effective at keeping you out of fires so come see me on the front end like if you're in business and you're signing contracts you should probably know what those things mean and i review those on a flat uh, for a flat fee if you are high, if you know clients are hiring you, you really you need to have a contract. I don't care how small your job is. We can do a, we can do terms and conditions, or you can do you know a contract that's really in plain English. And so, really come to me when you're you know you're you know just setting up. We can talk about what it looks like, and then when you're ready, you have some money, you can hire me. Um, or if you're really trying to scale your business to go to that next level, I think it's really essential on the front end. Obviously, I'm here for disputes and whatever, but I find that we can, you know, we can get in front of that um, and not have disputes 
with some, you know, simple things like well-written contracts and a collection strategy and just having that all on the front end. And a lot of my job is, hey, I got this issue. They're saying this. What are my options and what what should I do? And, and the first thing is obviously you got to call back and like uh, try to work something out before you get an attorney involved. And then they feel a little bit more confident about their situation. So, yeah. Now, this may depend on the specific type of, you know, work that the subcontractor does, but I'm sure there's a lot of of these tradesmen who can operate their whole business more or less off of one contract because the work is relatively similar. And I'm sure for those folks, you would say like, certainly, you know, get a great one and then you're kind of good to go. You modify it on your own from there. But I also know there's some contractors and maybe this is more general contractors where the jobs can vary quite a bit. So how how much modification of a contract should a subcontractor or contractor be doing on their own or is that something they have to figure out as as their business unfolds over the years so i mean on residential contractors that are being hired by homeowners that basically the only thing that changes is the scope of work something definitely we can do over just you can get a template and you change out the scope of work and the like the payment terms and everything else stays the same where you have a lot of variances is mostly on the commercial side and whether you're working directly for the owner or a subcontractor there is so much information in those contracts and so many things that are written in the language that, that most people can't understand that you really need to know what they say in plain English. And then you can evaluate the risk, right? Um, because then you can decide what you want to negotiate. I think there are some def things definitely on the, on the commercial side that should be negotiated um, and met in the middle on. On the residential side, if we're just clearing up front about the, the main purpose of a contract is to manage expectations of the parties. Mm -hmm. And we can do that really well and easily on, on the residential side with a clearly written contract. It's way more convoluted on the commercial side. So, mm -hmm. you know, it really kind of depends, but um, definitely needed one and, you know, want to understand what you're signing and what you're agreeing to before you sign it. So you... You said you guys will review contracts for a flat fee. What what is that? How what is a flat fee? What does it cost to have it, have you review one? So zero uh, zero to fifteen pages is five hundred and fifty dollars. Oh. And then fifteen to thirty pages is a thousand fifty. And then after that, it's hourly. And I usually don't look at like the exhibits, the scope documents. I just look at the guts of the contract that have like the terms and conditions. Yeah, that's not bad at all for the confidence. If it was a big job or a big contract, that could really help. So you, you, you mentioned the word scope a couple of times. Can you, and I don't, I don't know if that's a legal term. It must be to some extent, but can you define that a little bit? Because I know we've got scope. We've also got what the homeowner or the, you know, the customer is thinking about, which is bid, I guess, or the cost. So what, what are these, um, what is, what is scope? Um, can you define that a little? Yeah. So scope is, scope of work is what you're hired to do. And so let's, so as a residential contractor, if you give, if you put out a bid and say, I'm going to do this work for this price, you can say, you can attach that into the contract as exhibit A, and this is my scope of work, right? On the residential side, it's real clear, real easy. On the commercial side, they're two different things. If you are a residential contractor and you put a bid out uh, and you get a contract back, you're never hired to do your bid. You're hired to do the scope of work that's attached to that contract. So that in that situation, that can be two very different things. And we need to look at them appropriately to make sure that if we're signing a scope on a commercial contract, that there's something we didn't miss or that was added in since we did our bid. So, oh, interesting. So it, it's almost like the bid would be like a, a letter of intent or like a, a ballpark. Mm -hmm. But the scope of work is what actually matters 
in terms of, you know, the, the nitty gritty Absolutely. wording and all that. Absolutely. And that can be different. And that's a, that, you know, especially if you're new and you're considering commercial work, knowing that you're not hired to do your bid, that you're hired to do the scope of work is something that can bite you in the butt real big if you don't know the difference. Uh, interesting. Okay. Do, do you see a lot of contractors? Well, I, I kind of know the answer, but maybe this is one of the reasons why contractors will focus. They'll kind of be, I do commercial. Others will kind of do residential. There's a lot of different reasons why they vary so much, I would assume. This is probably one of them. Absolutely. And so like in my mind, legally, they're two completely different creatures, right? Like the first thing I want to know when I talk to you, are, are you a residential and commercial? And even the residential contractors, um, when they're talking commercial jobs, they're just working, they're doing, uh, they're working on commercial projects, but they're working directly for the owner. Uh, and so they can have their own contract. And most of the times, if they have a residential contract, they can use that same contract to have the owner sign. It's just when we're on the commercial side and we're signing someone else's contract, that things can get sticky. Because the the GC will be the one to give that sub their their contract that their attorney prepared. Correct. And and it you know I think when when you know it all started out, everybody did anything on a handshake, and then attorneys got involved and they started drafting contracts. And it's, attorneys draft contracts from the position of what's best for my client, but thinking that there will also be a negotiation. And oh. subcontractors just want to go to work. So they're like, oh, yeah, I'll just sign it. And so these subcontracts have gotten so one-sided that they are really dangerous creatures, right? Huh. I mean, they are. I wrote a whole book called Quit Getting Screwed because that's how bad the crap in, in these subcontracts are. Um, because wow. it's really. And, and, and here's the thing is that subcontractors are really good at what they do. They love, you know, they're good at their trade. Um, and they they don't realize the things that are in these contracts. Like they think there's some set of rules that protect them and there are not. Yeah. Um, and and so in a lot of ways they're at the disadvantage because a lot of laws from my understanding are more designed to protect the common man, like the, the owner, <laughs> the people who know the least about the, the trade. They're the ones who have the most uh, default level of protection. Okay. Right. Yeah. So like in every state, every state has something that is required to be in a residential contract to protect owners. There right. is not that same level of protection for a commercial subcontractor. Basically, wow. on that side, whatever you sign will be used against you. Residential homeowner, they think, you know, they don't want to get, you know, messed up by a bad contractor. So there's all, you know, every state has a little something. If not, like California has a lot of requirements of what needs to be in your residential contract. And Texas wow. even still has some. So um, I, I know from your bio that you kind of come from a family of maybe not subcontractors, but certainly working type folk, and you work with them now. What is it that you wish that these blue collar business owners and stuff knew, or what are you constantly trying to hammer in their head? And what is it that, you know, what do you like about working for them and, and with them, you know, besides just that that's maybe how you were kind of raised, but maybe there's more to it? No, I mean, I, that, I think that's my purpose here is to help save the family business, because that's what most of these are, right? And I've seen personally, the struggles that run through a family business, whether that's signing commercial contracts or waiting to get paid because um, you haven't gotten paid and you're, you're afraid you can't make payroll. And so these pressures I felt personally. And so I come at it with, okay, how can we help you streamline this, make this a better process to protect your business and make sure it will stay in existence. What really got me passionate about this is that my grandfather owned excavation company and actually went out of business because he didn't get paid. And if oh, I had been around, I could have help save that. And so that's, that's really my goal. And, I, and, and when I talk to residential contractors or contractors who are out there, that's home to me. 
I'm much more comfortable in a room full of contractors than I am in a room full of lawyers, right? Mm -hmm. It's just, that's not where I'm from. That's not, you know, I grew up in rural Illinois. My mom was a waitress. My dad was a farmer. So, you know, just salt of the earth people. I'm not. And um, I think that's what I'm good at. Wow. Well, why, why is it generally that contractors don't get paid? I, I know a lot of times there's just some dirtbag who just can see an opportunity to screw someone because that's just what business is to them. I know those people exist, but I know also a lot of times someone doesn't get paid and it's because the money's not there yet on the other side. It's almost like a good faith type of a thing. And it's kind of like people kind of all kind of be like, ah, shucks, like, ah, sorry, I don't know, nothing I can do. So what, what, what do you like when you go down the list of why people aren't getting paid to help people understand what these risks are? I'm sure there's someone listening who has not experienced this yet, who is a sub and you, we need to convince them that e even though you're a handshake kind of salt of the earth type, you know, this, these things happen anyways. No, exactly. And so a couple of things is, especially on the residential side, having a clear contract of when payments expected and what would happen if payments not received. So like if you have, you know, a remodel contractor, this project's going to take you know, a couple months, setting forth in the contract, we're going to reach this milestone. We're going to send you an invoice. You have five days to pay it. If you don't, we're, we're going to stop work, right? But the, the client receiving that invoice lets them know for sure that they owe you the payment, right? So sometimes it's just a miscommunication of, I'm not exactly sure, did they reach this milestone yet or not? And mm. so they haven't been paid. And mm. then the contractor gets upset because he hasn't been paid. And they're like, and so just being clear about when payment's expected. And then having, you know, having the right to stop work within five days if you're not paid is another huge thing. And then um, if it goes beyond that, knowing what the lien rights are for your state, hugely important and make sure you follow those letter those to a T. If you have to file a lien, you can. Because what a lien is, is it's a security interest in the property you're supplying labor and material to, which is a huge leverage um, to make sure that you will get paid at some point in time. So I know best practice, like if you're getting your contractor's license, they'll say you always file a lien at the start of every job. But in the real world, it doesn't happen like that. It just doesn't. But are you still advising all your your clients like, but you still need to try and do your best to do it no matter what? Or maybe talk about how you advise people about filing liens. No worries. And so what I what I do is first off, Lean, a lien is a part of a consistent collection strategy, right? We want to create a collection strategy that's going to improve your cash flow, but also make sure you have a valid lien at the end of the day if you have to file one. Uh, and the thing is that is like all 50 states are something very different on what that looks like. So like in Texas, you have to send a notice out the 15th day of the second month. In North Carolina, you got to register online with the project within 10 days of first work or 20 days of first work. Hmm. So it really depends on the rules of the state. And so I think Oregon, if I'm right, has a pre-lien notice, which just says within 20 days of starting work, you got to let the owner know that, hey, I could file a lien if I'm not paid. Mm. Um, and then that if you if you miss that step in the beginning, then you're not going to be able to file a lien. So knowing what that is and make sure we preserve that and do it right. I'm not being overly aggressive, but, you know, and with lien stuff, like I said, it's different in all 50 states, but they have timelines, right? Which have deadlines. You can always do things early. You just can't do them late. So what I really try to do with my clients is, is come up with a system that works with their cash flow and the lien rights and send out notices accordingly. And most right. of the time, if you send out notices and make phone calls, you can get paid without ever having to file a lien. But a lien is great security to have anyways. I'm sure there's software packages that contractors can use that kind of 
integrate this with the actual invoices themselves and stuff? I mean, that's a little outside of, of <laughs> law, but is I'm looking, is there any easier way to do this? It, like automatic, you know, how come robots can't do this for the contractors right now? Um, so I, I know I realized that was an issue. Uh, I, I founded Subcontractor Institute, which has the rules for all 50 states on how to file a lien. Um, and you can buy the lien forms there. What I do, and I saw this as an issue, is I offer lien collection service either on a flat fee or on a subscription pricing, right? So that you can outsource your collection department and that'll include the phone calls, the lien processing and the filing. There are some there are some lien filing services out there online, but they're not very successful because they don't re they don't follow the rules that are different in all 50 states. Mm -hmm. And having an invalid lien is more dangerous than having no lien at all. Um, oh. And so why is that? Because a lien, when if you file it correctly, is is an interest on the property. You could stop any sale. You could stop it from refinancing or getting a loan on the property. You know, it's basically an interest on a real property, just like a mortgage. So uh -huh. it's got a, it's got great strength, but if you mess it up and do it wrong, then you're you're wrongfully stopping this this owner from you know selling the property or getting oh, a loan. Oh, geez. So, so you could be like you're getting sued for that. And I was exactly. also thinking you could, if you thought you had a lien, it might cause you to purchase materials or proceed into a job with a little more like conviction. Cause you're like, well, I'm in good shape, da, da, da. And if it was wrong, you could get to the other side of it and have zero lien. And maybe yeah. you wouldn't have bought whatever 20 air conditioners or something. If, <laughs> if you had Exactly. Known. And so I think, I think if you know what the rules are, you talk to like a qualified attorney and know what the rules are for your state and have that in your pocket. And yeah. then, then you can move forward with the confidence of here's when I have to take actions and make sure that, you know, I preserve my lien rights because yeah. it is, it is great leverage. And like I said, if you do it right, most of the time you don't even have to file it. It's just the threat of filing the lien. Yeah. Also, you know, yeah. So it's a subcontract institute is a great resource. All that's on there for free because I don't real, I don't think contractors realize what a great resource and leverage that it actually is. So what, what is it exactly? Is it, this is a resource that you've put together. You mentioned some of the things in there, but um, is it like, you, did you say it's free? Yep. It's free. Oh, wow. It's free. I'm actually in the process of turning it into a nonprofit. It's just my free educational platform because I think there's a lack of um, contractor information out there like this in a way that can be easily understood. Yes. Um, and so I just, I want to put it out there. I want people to have the information and to know how to protect themselves. Oh, that's really cool. We will probably be talking about this a lot on our channel. I, I stumbled into something like that um, related to real estate and like landlord tenant law, like some law firm in Tucson, Arizona had put up all this material. I don't know how I found it, but it, the confidence I had knowing it was like from this, you know, law firm, as opposed to, you know, these like uh, Google images of like, oh, you want a contract? What kind of contract would you like? And, and they pop up and it's like, it, like you said, it's almost like feels like you're doing more harm than good. Although mm -hmm. I've downloaded things from time to time, but when it's coming from a real uh, <laughs> attorney in the, in the U S and Texas, no less that that is really valuable. Wow. That's really great. Thank you. I mean, that's a project of mine. Cause like I said, my, my true mission is to help these businesses run better businesses and they have so many, so many resources they don't even know that they have. And like yeah. most guys, they're out there just trying to bust their hump every day and make payroll and take care of their family. They don't, they don't have anybody that's looking looking out for them. I read the, the story on your website, and you could probably tell a hundred versions of this story of a masonry contractor who was, you know, going about the job, and the client happened to be extremely 
I'll say annoying, but it's the type of person micromanaging and nitpicking and stuff. And actually, my dad had a, a has a story. We might have shared it with the audience about a similar job he did where basically the homeowner was over his shoulder the entire time, undermining, second guessing. And it caused like some major issues um, on this on the job he had. It ended up where he kind of, you know, wrote the lady a check for everything and just walked away, which was probably the best case scenario. But to your point about contractors being feeling alone, not only can they be alone, but they can be alone and be like publicly viewed as like the villain. Like this contractor came in and da da da, and look, they they never even finished this. And what a lot of people don't realize about construction is these things are kind of normal, you know, in terms of I don't know, scuffing a wall or drilling a hole in the wrong spot. Like for contractors and you know someone like yourself who sees this world, that's not crazy but if it's the first time ever experiencing something like that it might feel really crazy and like you got to be like i'm gonna get my attorney and we're gonna da 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 and then what happens when it goes to court like in the story you described the Mm -hmm. guy lost no exactly you know like the the huge what that guy could have really done different and i you know i I try to couch my clients on this is let the client know that there'll be a i'll be a punch out or a walkthrough where that, you know, the, the, the drill, the hole that was drilled in the wrong place will be filled in, you know, that this stuff, as we move along, these things are going to happen, but we'll be taken care of in the end. Yeah. Because a homeowner has a set of expectations in their mind who gave them to, you know, maybe their brother-in-law or somebody said it should go this way. And so now you're going to be judged on those expectations unless you take the time to go through your contract and say, here, here's our reasonable expectations based on schedule, based on material prices, all of this. And here's the possibility of change orders. If you do that, you've changed their expectations and you will be judged accordingly, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's when we don't have a contract and we don't do those things that we end up in those situations. And, you know, a jury is made up of homeowners, not people that run construction companies. Yeah. So it's, it's a very jaded audience you have to try yeah. to convince. All they're saying is, oh, my God, you left the homeowner's house like that? How could yeah. you? <laughs> and there are scumbag contractors who really do take the money and run. And it, so it's like a few bad apples kind of a thing. Like they can, it can really put the the guy in a tough spot who was definitely maybe doing like a, nor, a, a workmanlike manner, all the normal ways, but the, the contractor has never seen it, or the, I'm sorry, the homeowner who had never seen it before is freaking out and maybe in the middle of the job, just like in that story, just nukes it and then everybody loses. So what, what have you seen over the last few years with COVID? And there's been a lot of, I got to imagine stress on contracts um, from lockdowns and and such. So what what have you seen among subcontractors over that time period? And is anything changing to your messaging, you know, going forward after this? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think like COVID and, and it's so much, you know, well, I say I have to say COVID has been really good for the residential contractors, right? Because everybody's nobody's going anywhere. They're all spending on their money on their house, improving it. And I've talked to contractors from all across the country that are busy and booked out, which has been a great thing, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But I think it really is having that contract. And then having two things in that contract is that material price escalation. If you don't have that in your contract, you could have to eat the price of that escalation. So mm-hmm. I, I have some blog articles with the exact language you could pop in your contract that says, if you know prices increase more than 2% from the time I bid this job, I'm entitled to do the difference. You can also do a cost, a cost plus contract. Um, I also put in those contracts about you know potential delays because we can't get materials or appliances or things like that. And just being upfront, you know, this is my promised completion date but it has these variables that I can't control. 
Um, and so that way the homeowner knows. And then also I have contractors that put in in their um, contracts the opposite. Like if the homeowner takes too long to pick something out, then, you know, they get more time added to the schedule. Um, because I think that's, I think that's another big issue that they, that they may, they may face. So, yeah, you're right. Especially in residential where, where there's, you know, they're making a decision on their lifetime kitchen remodel and they're like, don't rush me, please. Exactly. (laughs) And you're like, okay, I don't want to rush you, but then you're gonna push back the schedule and just putting that in the contract that if you take longer than three or four days, it's going to, we're going to have to add those days on the contract. You kind of answered this by talking about contractors and you're, you're from this world, but as, as clients, what are the, what are subcontractors and what are contractors like generally? Because, for example, as employers, they can be a little tough. They got to kind of crack a whip and like <laughs> and and push and be brutal. What what are contractors like as 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 a customers for you? Well, man, I have I have the I have the gamut, right? I have the guy that won't even answer the phone if I call him three times, right? It's like he's like, you handle it, cool, yeah. I'll handle it. But I still need your input sometimes. To the to the other side is like telling me what I should do. And I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll take your suggestion, but here's what I think we should do. And like, I know you're good at what we, what you do, but I'm good at what I do too. So mm-hmm. it really kind of depends because I think you have the same type of business owners, those people that are control freaks, those people are a little more relaxed. And I think you got to be somewhere in the middle to do it, to do it right. Right. So yeah. um, the main thing, you know, is that I'm, sometimes you might even, I'm just going to give you my advice and you can, you can decide and I'll let, you know, I'm just going to lay out all the options and what I think potential outcomes are. And then yeah. you, get, you get to decide, you know, the structure of the case. I hired an attorney once. I was my the only construction project, you know, the permit that I pulled, and I was the kind of owner builder. And it was, I was a little out of my lane, but that's okay. Um, and the process of getting it permitted with the county was extremely frustrating. It took years and so much back and forth. And I definitely take some of the maybe not responsibility, but a lot of it, yeah, a lot of it was my fault because I was kind of new to it. Also, a lot of things went really sideways with the county. And I, at the point when I was at my breaking point, I kind of brought an attorney on. I was like, look, this is what they're doing to me. I'm getting so screwed. And he gave me uh, the advice like, yeah, you are getting so screwed. Please don't sue them. You will get, you will lose even more. And, And like, and I was like, I had this like, you know, righteous indignation. I was kind of like f- feeling like loading my gun and like, I'm going to da da da. And looking back now, I'm like, oh my gosh, thank goodness that this guy kind of like gave me that advice. Can you talk about that a little bit? How often do people need to cool their jets when they kind of call you? Maybe they got a valid issue, but how often do things need to escalate in that way? Like with the court? Well, the first thing I say, if it's based solely on pride, it's never anything you want to do. Pride is entirely too expensive. Um, I've taken those lawsuits and clients have paid me $50,000, over a $3,000 claim that could have been paid. And so that's the conversation that I'm going to have. If a homeowner comes to you and, 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 and even though they're not right, they want $3,000. And I'm going to tell you, you're better off, pay them the $3,000 and move on, even if they're not right. Because I know what it can turn into, right? I know that it can turn into very expensive litigation and that doesn't win for anybody, right? So the the situation, the, the conversations I have are what can we learn from this and how can we do it better next time? But um, another thing that residential contractors should know that I think people, a lot of people don't know is that almost every state has a process where before a residential contractor can be sued, the homeowner has to give them an opportunity to cure any defects. So it's not automatically going to lawsuit. So during that process, I really try to work with the contractor and the homeowner to reach a deal. 
to get mm. it done so it doesn't go any further. And it might be stretching my client a little further than they want to go, but it's only because I've seen the alternative. I'm like, if you want to write me $10,000 a month checks to take this case to trial, we can do that. But it's not the best you could ever hope for in court is to break even. And most of the times you won't. And that doesn't even take into account to your time, your time going to trial, your time going through your documents, your time getting your deposition taken and just the stress of the, of that situation. Um, there's a, there's a value to that, to not have to do that. Yeah. I'm not afraid of a fight. I'm really good at it, but it's not the best way to spend your, your company's money. Yeah. And it's, difficult it can be difficult when you're like the contractor the person getting screwed to have that perspective yeah because absolutely. <laughs> it's so emotional you're so like yeah, emotionally wrapped up in it they won't hire me because they don't think i want to fight and it's not that i don't want to fight it's just i want to take a smart fight yeah yeah so not do you do the, are you doing mediation then when you say you bring parties is that part of like the services that a, a firm like yours offers as well well, yeah, I do. So like, I'm not, a, I am a mediator, but I usually don't mediate. So mediators like an independent third party that two parties that are fighting go to, to try to resolve their dispute. And so I'll represent a party in mediation. And so it, mediation is a very helpful tool to get all the parties together and really put all the issues on the table and try to hash out a deal. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's not binding. Most parties are, can be successful if we're going to be reasonable at settling it. And then, you know, then it's over and it's done. Oh. So, so you're okay. I see. So you're representing your clients still, but instead of before a jury or a judge, you're representing them at, at a mediation setting. And right. is that what you meant when you said like, you know, we can work out a deal or is there, is there a step even below that? Cause sometimes, you know, you just need, I don't know. Is there, is there a step below mediation, you know, to, to really, you know, solve these things? Does, yeah, so you get like? so you get that letter from the client, from your homeowner client, and you you can go out and do an inspection, or or you know go and see what they're saying if it's valid or not, and then you make an offer. If yeah. that's a reasonable offer, whether it's to fix it, to pay them money, or to have somebody else come fix it and try to settle it at that point, and you can go back and forth on those offers until you get to something that is that is doable. Yeah, um, and and that's how it, most of them settle. And you know the courts are getting backed up with all and all these residential contractors getting sued unreasonably, which is why I think all these things came into play to make this process happen before yeah. a residential contractor can be sued. Um, because most of the times it's like, just give us a chance to go fix it. We will. Yeah. Yeah. Um, speaking of court being such a disaster or at least, um, costly for lots of ways. I, I've been watching the highlights from the Johnny Depp trial that's going on right now i don't know if you have been but a little bit i hear a little bit from my i think my husband and my daughter have been watching it so oh, they're hearing it go back and it's forth insane can it's, you imagine it, how painful that is though no i can't your, imagine it. your life just opened up like that in front of everybody well i had on it popped on my youtube autoplay and what the part that popped on was like a phone recording that's like the most private thing and not only is it now like for the court but it's like getting streamed to everybody it's it's completely insane and that's that's a obviously a really extreme example, but it still made me think like how much everybody involved is losing. I guess maybe those attorneys are making some money, but I'm sure. And, and somebody wrote that you know that's he was that you know his his reputation was tarnished, right? Yeah. And well, even those attorneys though, because it's like so public that they're even, they're getting criticism and taking arrows from their you know public image, whatever. That I'm like, man, I don't know what it would take to for this to be worth it for. Even the attorneys who are here, I don't uh, know. And just imagine how they could twist the facts in your case. 
Yes. Right? In your mind, your case is so clear your yeah. way. You have no idea what the other side can do to twist and turn the facts to make them something you don't even recognize. Okay, I know. And man, attorneys, um, and this gets to like the stereotype, but they're asking these questions. They're so simple. Like, did you do this? Yes or no? And you can see the person mm. on the stand being like, I mean, maybe. Yes, <laughs> but that's not. And then they're like, that's it. Objection. And then, oh, man. I, so this whole world is new to me. And it's the, the, the times where it comes through, like in movies generally, but occasionally, like something like this is a light on this world that is, it's actually kind of terrifying. Yeah. And that I've never been sued yet, and I'm sure maybe it'll happen someday. Like I said, I had that one close call, and then the other um, legal interaction I had was on that same project. I had a there was a utility company that had some utilities on my property mm-hmm. where they didn't have an easement, and I was trying to build, so they had to move them, and they were not listening. It, nothing was happening, and so I I kind of reluctantly I escalated, mm-hmm. and this attorney sent a letter and solved it, and that was a case where. Again, I was so grateful, like, oh, man, this professional cost me whatever, mm-hmm. 1500 bucks for a letter, and it kind of <laughs> solved the problem, and I just wanted to hug the guy. Like, thank you so much. I spent, like, six months, like, calling the yeah, exactly. century link trying to fix it. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. And then you're like, an efficient attorney can be that way, and that's what, you know, a deal like that, that's what you want, a letter, and it's done, right? Yeah. That's really the way to go. <laughs> you must really get a lot of satisfaction when you have clients who, and maybe some of it you don't know because you're you're heading off problems that they would have had if you hadn't put their contracts in place before. So <laughs> it could be that you don't really get like the huge paydays as if no. you like win a case or something. But it's still got to feel good knowing you're protecting people. No, exactly. I got I have a, a lean case I'm working on now where our guy our client's a roofer. And he was subcontracted. So there was a GC, the subcontractor, and my client who was a sub-subcontractor on a commercial project. And it's very clear that from October till December my, of last year, my client worked without getting paid. Oh. And, but apparently the contractor, the, the subcontractor, the GC was paying for our work. And now it's all coming to light that this guy got paid and didn't pay our guy. And, oh. you know, and so I'll probably get him paid. But if I didn't step in and he didn't have a lien, he would have gotten completely screwed. Wow. And it's like so $40,000. That that that's, can put people out of business. Like, uh, it's easy to think of contractors on commercial jobs. You know, there's a lot of, well, they can go out of business as well. But $40,000 is plenty enough for someone to be like, uh, you know what? I'm just going to go work at Home Depot now because I can't, <laughs> I can't make this work anymore. No, and, and, and that, I think that, you know, that's why you have a hard time, especially when you go out on your own, that people are don't want to choose the trades as a biz as a, as a business because yeah. it can be so cutthroat. How do you advise people that this is like a part of our messaging that we're trying to improve, but it's something that I even not about struggle, but think about, which is transitioning from someone who likes working, who likes tools and using their hands. And they like to build and that's what they want to do. And that's on the, that's what they do. And then like, Oh, I'm gonna make a business out of this, but it's just so different than the actual, trade skills. So how, how do you, and again, this is not quite maybe what your business is made of, but what do you see among the people who successfully make that transition that stacks the deck in their favor from being able to uh, succeed in business versus what type of people are just, are really you kind of wash out for that, for all these reasons? No, absolutely. And I think everybody gets into it because they love it. And very fast, they realize that in order to keep doing what you love, you have to learn how to run a business, right? And mm-hmm. very fast, they get moved out of that role of being the actual hands-on into running the business part. And I think the successful ones 
are intentional, right? They're intentionally uh, getting a bookkeeper to manage the books and knowing if they're making any money on the jobs. They're intentional about having a contract that protects them. They have a goal and they're headed somewhere and here's are the steps to how they're going to get there. Right. Mm -hmm. As opposed to just going through the day to day effort just to keep the doors open, having somewhere you're heading and then taking those steps to get there. And it's, mm -hmm. you know, it's bookkeeping, it's legal, it's all of those things. It's sales, it's, you know, customer service, all of those things put together. But if you're intentional about each one of those things at a time and then putting it as part of the whole, it, it's that's what that's what matters. Right. Yeah. So with contractors, it's it's always easy to imagine like, oh, you know, we're going to negotiate this contract we get back or I'm going to, you know, file these liens and let everybody know up front. But in reality, that's it can be very choppy doing that when you're also trying to, like, get the job, you know, and you're competing mm -hmm. on price with some other subs. And so that's hard. How do you how do how do you advise people do that? Like how how much negotiating Maybe it's just case by case, but should people negotiate when they get a contract back or do you kind of just, are there a couple of things that are like red lines that you say, like never allow this to go through? What kind of things should someone look at in order to maybe decide whether they should push and negotiate when they want the job? And here's the thing is that if they're reading the contract and have questions, that's a good thing, right? I'm all for that. It's when they, when they take advantage of you or I think sometimes will lack contractors lack confidence in their work or their ability, and they'll give it away for free. Um, and there are people who will take advantage of that. Absolutely. Um, and so just, you have a set process, you have those things in there for a reason and knowing that you're worth those things in there. You know, like I said, ask questions and there may be some things that you're willing to give on, but if someone comes up and redlines your whole contract and wants to bulldoze you, they never get any better than the first day. I promise you. <laughs> And the relationship is not going to get any better than when you're, you know, what during the, you know, the honeymoon phase, like I'm so excited with this project and you're the greatest contractor ever. It's only going to, and if it's already degrading and that first, and that's the biggest thing I tell my, my contractors is trust your gut because yeah. 90% of the contractors that come into my office with a problem, like I knew I shouldn't have done this job. There was this red flag. There was this red flag and I did it anyways. It's not something I normally do, but I did it anyways. Those are the guys that get in trouble. And, and it's not because, and it's usually because they're doing something nice. You know, this yeah. is a, my mom's friend and I did extra work for them. I didn't even charge them. And those are the guys that get in trouble. It's just crazy to me. But that's, that's, that's who I see. That's what happens. And, you know, flipping that concept on its head, if you, yeah, let's say you do markup, let's say you get a contract back from a GC, you're a sub, and you want to negotiate a couple of things. It's almost like maybe that, maybe you could lose a job, but it's an opportunity to see in the future if they give you big pushback, like, no way, we're not going to adjust that. Then now what was once just like a, a red flag is now like a, a red siren, like beeping, <laughs> like they, if they're not going to understand your perspective on that, then to your point, maybe. No, and, not I think, worth I think, the job. and I think you too, you come because on the commercial side, if you're dealing with a project manager, they might not understand the effect of what you're trying to change. And so letting them know, Hey, there's this, there's this pay when paid clause. That means, you know, the general contractor has to pay. I mean, the owner has to pay the general before I can get paid that a lot can go wrong in that relationship that I don't have a control over. So I'm going to try to negotiate that. And here's why, because I can't afford to afford to float this job cash for labor and materials and just wait to the entire project to get paid. So if you come at it from that way and then something in the middle, you're not 
if you're being reasonable and the other side is being unreasonable, yeah, let somebody else, let me, somebody else take the unreasonable. Yeah. How, how common is that paid when paid clause? In every sub commercial subcontract. So they try to default that at the default is the pay when paid. I guess that would mean pay. they don't really take much risk. I guess they just Absolutely. kind of pass the risk on. Wow. And yes, they, and so, yeah. And, and here's the thing is that, and you don't get to stop working if you're not paid. Well, because right. technically the GC doesn't owe you payment under the contract yet if they haven't been paid. So they're not in default. They're not in breach of the contract. And that's the kind of thing that it's, if it's a signed contract, it's, it's, it, it seems almost like unfair, not like it should be illegal, but like kind of dirty, but you're saying, no, 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 that's, that's totally a fair agreement. Assuming it's not both fair, parties but agree. if you sign it, it'll be, it'll be used against you. It'll be held against you. Absolutely. No judge will be like, oh, that's a dirty trick. We're not going to yeah, let that. No, I've tried that before. It doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, but you signed the contract, but your honor. No. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> is that, do they, is that written generally? Is like paid when paid or is that kind of obfuscated in like legalese that is like, what should people, how do you look for that? Is it, I guess you just read it, but yeah. I guess maybe that's the answer. Read the contracts. <laughs> or have somebody do it for you. Or have Usually it says it. as a condition to pay of payment to the subcontractor is payment from the owner or something along that. Sometimes they say pay when paid, but if oh. you go to the payment section, there'll be in there that the GC is not obligated to pay the subcontractor until they're paid by the owner something along those lines. Okay. Okay. Uh, here's maybe my last question for you. And this is for me, something I haven't understood well about attorneys, but I know attorneys are licensed in states, which means they're allowed to practice law in that state. But then there's all these parts of law that are like, yeah, except for, I can't think of one, I don't know, you know, filing this or that, you know, there, there's other things that, oh, like, like patents and those types yeah. of things, those can be nationwide. So um, for, for subcontractors and contractors, do, can they hire someone and, you know, you're in Texas, maybe you're licensed in other states. What do they need to know about how to find an attorney where they're at and who's um, going to be familiar with their state and able to represent them? You know, how, how, how important is it that the person's like local? Well, so local depends on if you're going to litigation, right? So I, as a, an attorney, I represent contractors from all over the country on contract negotiations, collections, all that stuff. I'm working on, I'm licensed in a bunch of states now. I'm getting licensed and I have contacts in all 50 states. So I could litigate, but to litigate, to go to court, you need to be licensed. But with all this other stuff, you, you don't, you don't necessarily have to be licensed in that state, just be an attorney. Okay. Um, so that's it. But the main things for construction attorneys is find somebody, find an attorney that knows construction because yes, being a lawyer helps you know the court process, but the construction industry by itself is its own industry and is its own creature. And if you don't understand that, you cannot be very helpful to somebody in the construction yeah. industry as an attorney. So like, yeah. you know, people who, who are new to me, it doesn't take very long for them to realize that, oh yeah, I speak your language as lean, yeah. lean waivers, change orders, concrete PSI, all the, all of the things, right? They're, yeah. If they're not talking your language, then you need to find somebody that can. And it's more yeah. so on the construction side. That makes so much sense. Cause just someone's, just because someone's passed the bar and is, I don't know, done a bunch of divorces or something like that's great. Mm -hmm. But yeah, there could like you described that pay when paid clause, like that may not, they might not know what them. <laughs> exactly. Or they might, they might not know 
what the effects of it are, right? Yeah, like yeah, yeah. I would never do your divorce. I would never draft your will because I wouldn't be any good at it because that's yes. not what I do. Um, you know, so they're kind of just like a doctor kind of niche yes. on what we do. And, you know, there are lots of good construction lawyers out there um, that are really, that are pa just as passionate as I am. That's one thing I can say. I've, um, you know, have talked to attorneys from around the country and most, because we're usually representing the little guy. So we're very passionate about what we do. And, you know, yeah. it's very much justice based, you know, um, and that's how we feel about it. So, yeah, that is so cool. It's, it's a great feeling. And I'm, I'm hoping that there's, that I'm sure there will be someone listening who this is helpful for, because there's this feeling, maybe our listeners would, could understand that like when you're hiring a contractor, when you find the right contractor or sub who has the exact tool that you know you need for this exact job and they're cool. And it's like, <laughs> oh, Thank, Thank God. Yes, I will. I, I'm going to keep your number for the till my dying day. So you're so grateful you added that contact. They're so valuable. In addition to their expertise and tools, um, they're usually more affordable because yeah. they can do the thing you need day in day out. So they understand it. So like your fees for contract review and such are probably going to be more affordable or certainly no more expensive than someone who's learning it all for the first time because it's a you know specialization. Yeah. So that. I really think that's amazing, and what a what a valuable ally mm -hmm. for the Absolutely. for the trades to have an attorney in, a, in an off a whole office, I guess, who's kind of thinking of them first, right? Exactly, and like you pick up the phone, like I got this nasty email from a from a client. What do I do? And would like here do this response once, and if you have to do it again, then CC me on it, right? So just. Yeah. really to help you before you get that, before you get in the courtroom, before you, like I said, that's my, my whole hope is to keep you out of it. So. Yeah. Well, Carolyn, thank you so much. Where, where do we send people? If there is someone who's like, I got a contract right now, I need the next step. How do people get in touch with you if they want to uh, get your help? Sure. I mean, call the office. It's 713-715-7334 or the chromingslawfirm.com. Um, or my, if you can reach out on Facebook, I'm there, uh, Carolyn Chromings. Um, and then I, I message people all the time and send them my Calendly link so we can schedule a time to talk because I find that's the easiest. Oh, it's amazing. Calendly is the oh, absolute no. miracle tool, huh? <laughs> like I had a guy that was look, look, was on my website at 830, sent me a message and we set up a cal Calendly and I happened to have a 1230 open. He's like, wow. That was, it. I was like, <laughs> it, I, it just happened that way today that I had 30 minutes open at 1230. So. Yeah, it's just increasing efficiency for everybody. Like uh, my barber um, or the bar my barber now because he uses it. He, and it's like I used to like have to like stop in and see how many people are waiting there. So we're <laughs> just getting so much more efficient. The more people who are using this type of uh, technology. Oh, and how do people find the Subcontractor Institute? Where Where is that uh, material at? It's subcontractorinstitute.com. And I I mentioned before I wrote the book Quickening Screw, which is all about subcontracts. And on on there for free, I teach all twenty chapters of all the bad crap that are in subcontracts. And there's like eighty free forms and just a, a really a really great place to find some great information. Well, thank you so much for coming. We'll do it again. I hope everybody enjoyed this. Uh, Carolyn, thank you so much, and uh, have a great rest of your day. Thank you so much for having me.